Thanks for downloading show 93 of the C-Suite podcast, the second of two episodes that we're producing in partnership with PR Week from their strategic internal communications conference that's taking place in Canary Wharf. My name's Russell Goldsmith, and in the previous episode, we had some great interviews with some of the speakers from the event. So if you haven't already, make sure you listen to that great episode, but not before you've listened to this one, of course. Uh, For the first interview on this podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Jane Tebby, Head of Internal Communications at the National Physical Laboratory, who has just finished running a breakout session here about using workplace channels more effectively. Uh, Jane, in the description of your session on the agenda, it asks whether an overload of communication messages and channels is making us less productive. Uh, what was the feeling in the room to that? There was certainly a lot of a lot of people were agreeing with that that uh, sentiment, and there are a number of issues that that came out when we had our first discussion on what are the what are the problems people are facing. So people raised the issue of how to make sure that the right messages are landing. People are getting the important messages, and at the same time enabling people to access the content that they want so that was quite a key issue the role of leaders again came through that was a really important piece in terms of the role that leaders play in in, uh, engaging people with messages there was quite a lot of agreement about the feeling of so much new communications technology being available and it being quite confusing for a communications professional in terms of uh, how you choose the most appropriate technology. So I think those were the main the, the main issues that came out from from our discussion. And I guess then just the general feeling of overloading people, overwhelming people with so many channels and so many different messages. Well, you, you just touched on there what I was going to ask you actually, which is how do you make that right choice? You know, when you've got all these different channels in front of you and, and more coming all the time. How do you make a choice for the organisation? So I shared with the, the group some guidance that I, I use myself and, and with my team. And then the most important thing is to really not start by focusing on the channels, but to start with thinking about what are your messages? What are you trying to get across? What do you want people to understand? What do you want them to think, feel, do? Uh, what response do you want? Really be clear on what you're trying to achieve with communication. Then think about who you're engaging with. Who's your audience? What do they need from this? What is their situation? What are their preferences in terms of communication? What's, are they out and about? Are they at a desk? You know, think about how best you might be able to reach and engage them. Because once you know those things, once you know what your message is and you know who you're trying to reach and how, and how they, they best like to be engaged with, then thinking about the channels that, that you can use um, becomes a lot easier. So that's the key guidance, you know, think about that before you then move on to channels and and look at what's available to you and what range of channels uh, you could use. And then finally, thinking about how do you follow up on all of that? So how do you measure the impact? How do you measure, one, has something landed? Two, how has it landed? How have people responded? And uh, three, has it achieved the objective that you, you set originally? Because that then enables you to think about whether you need to adjust your approach and use some different channels, take a different approach, depending on the feedback that you get. I'm, ke- I'm keen to find out you know, what uh, channels you've implemented uh, at your organisation to create a more efficient workplace. But before you do that, maybe you can just give us a quick overview of the work that MPL does. So, yes, MPL is the National Physical Laboratory. We are a government-owned company. That means we work both for government and also we deliver work for uh, the private sector. Our role is as a world-leading measurement science laboratory. Uh, We work across a whole range of of disciplines, looking at, for example, uh, best 
better healthcare, access to um, better radiotherapy. We apply a whole range of different measurement techniques across different industries, for example, looking at earth observation, materials for transport, autonomous vehicles, sensors, um, a whole range of new technologies um, for the modern world. So obviously people in, in lots of different places, you know, in, in different locations. So what, what, what are the kind of tools that you've implemented then? Well, I am lucky in some ways because I have most of my people um, in, uh, in one location, but we do have centres around the UK and increasingly people out and about working flexibly, working from home, choosing uh, the hours and the patterns that they work. So we do need to think about how we can reach everybody wherever they are and, and provide options for them so that they, they can access uh, communications in a way that suits them. So over the last year, the, a particular focus for us has been on implementing the Office 365 suite of um, tools. And that's been to enable people to have up-to-date communications technology to use across a variety of situations. So, for example, we've moved from an overload of email to a much more focused use of email through one through implementing some controls on use of email but two through introducing Microsoft Teams and Yammer to Teams for, to enable them to, to utilise those tools more effectively and we're also revolutionising our intranet moving from quite an old HTML style intranet to a new SharePoint based intranet that's still work in progress um, but it's looking great and it's very much supporting the future direction of the company. So those are two changes that we've made to modernise our channels. So that's really interesting. Um, so if you were to sum up your session, what would be the key messages you want listeners to take away with them from this podcast? So there, was, there, were, there were a few takeaway points I shared at the end. Um, and the first one is to come back to what are you trying to achieve with your communication? That should drive everything. Your choice of, of channels should be driven by what you're communicating and who you're communicating with. Less is more, so as well as adding in some new platforms this year, we've also taken some things away. So don't just keep introducing more and more because that, that uh, becomes overwhelming. Focus on your leaders. Leaders was a really key topic, so we've spent time also supporting our leaders to be better communicators, enabling to do that. You can make change in a sort of incremental, evolutionary fashion. It doesn't have to be big bang you can do a step-by-step approach and it can be done on a limited budget we've had to make use of the tools and and, and resources available internally I haven't got a big budget to to spend externally so I have to be very careful with how I use my money Um, and we've still been able to make quite a lot of change over the last year by building on what's being introduced across the business and the other message I, I, I gave was you can be bold you can try some new things it doesn't matter if they fail try it out if it doesn't land well if employees feedback indicates it didn't quite work for them that's fine you've tried it you can move on try something different but don't be afraid to try something new tremendous uh jane thank you so much for joining the show you're very welcome Next to join me is Carla Groom, Head of Behavioural Science at the Department for Work and Pensions. And Carla is speaking later today about using behavioural science to communicate strategically. Carla, how how important is it having someone with as deep an understanding of behavioural science as you do available to an internal communications team? Well, in our experience in the Department for Work and Pensions, we bring some extra tools that can help solve problems that seem to be a bit thorny or a bit uncrackable that our colleagues are struggling with. And internal comms in particular 
um, sometimes comes to us with ad hoc projects where messages don't seem to be getting through or perhaps where they're having to change a message. Like how, do you, how do you get people to, to, to recognise something's different? And so we will sort of look over it, over their problem with them, help them to think through what the behaviour is that they're really trying to change. So bringing the, the target behaviour into higher resolution, greater focus, if you like, and also help them to think about what kinds of evidence could they go and gather. So help them to narrow in their, their audience insight work so that they're just gathering the right information they need to make decisions about how the best way is to, in, to communicate. But also, apart from that sort of more ad hoc tactical work, what we've been really lucky to be part of is being strategic partners with internal comms and other elements of the business in really designing massive organisational changes in ways that put the employee at the centre of it. And that's one of the examples I'll talk about later is changes to our performance management system. Excellent. Well, on, on that note, the, your talk this afternoon is billed as showing how using a behavioural lens allows you to better link your communications with organisational objectives. So can you give us an, a, an overview of, of what that talk's going to be about? Sure. So it's really, uh, the, the talk today is, is based around some work that we've done with government communication service as a whole, which is the sort of home profession in government for internal comms and other kinds of, of communicators. It's quite a, a tight-knit profession. So the guidance that comes out from from the center really really matters so if we're going to help our dwp colleagues it's also helpful to to reach out to the the people at gcs and what we worked with them on was a a strategic guide to thinking about the behaviors that their campaigns are trying to achieve and to set those with as i was sort of mentioning before that greater level of, of resolution and specificity gathering the right kinds of insight and i've turned that capability building work that we've done and we've been rolling out uh, training seminars across all of government into a bite-sized piece for this afternoon and uh, you you won't get all of it here because this is a quick podcast but you can read the document that we published about this if you go to gov.uk and you look for a document called strategic communications a behavioral approach and that has lots and lots of detail about exactly how we have meshed together the communications framework with a behavioural approach and it can really be used by, by anybody who's trying to communicate anything. I like the way you squeeze that in there, very good. Give us a quick overview of how you've used this, you know, this approach in, in DWP then. So in DWP, there's a, two examples that I was, I'm going to talk about this afternoon. One of those is a more tactical one, which is uh, work that we've done to help encourage people to follow security processes, which is always, uh, you're always playing catch up because the threats that department faces are always changing. So it's always an ongoing communications challenge to get those rules across. And I'll, I'll talk about a tool that we use called COMB, which basically says that work out what the behavior is you want, that's the B, and then work out the types of, the reasons why people might not be engaging with that behavior under three headings, capability, motivation, opportunity. And we'll talk about how you can think from a comms perspective about which of those behavioural barriers can be removed by communications and which can't. So in the case of people not following security rules, you can make sure that they've got the knowledge of what the rules are. You can make sure that people know what the consequences are for them personally and for the department if you're not following them. What you can't do is deal with some of the physical barriers. So if people don't have somewhere to lock away their their secure materials, you need to work with other parts of the business to address that physical design issue. So really what our approach does is it both helps the communicators to get their 
uh, messages across, but it also helps them to have productive conversations with the rest of the business to say, this can't be just done through comms. This isn't just a campaign issue. We need to come together with other elements of intervention, like a physical redesign of the building. And the, the larger example that um, I'm also going to mention right at the end of the, of the talk is about a change to people performance where we've been asked to help redesign the performance appraisal system and in working with internal communications and doing focus groups we realised that the goals of the department actually needed themselves to be changed. It wasn't that we needed a new people performance system, it's needed, we needed to get rid of it altogether. So that was very exciting. You make it sound very straightforward, very easy. <laughs> there must be some challenges that you've come up across in, in both those projects. I think one of, the, one of the challenges is getting people to realise that there are opportunity barriers to behaviour, that it isn't all about people not being too lazy to do what they're supposed to do or not having the information. And there's a good reason why people tend to forget that there could be opportunity barriers to behaviour, that people not having the time or the money or the social support or lots of other reasons. And it's something that the psychologists call the fundamental attribution error. So when you see somebody do something, you think that the reason that they're doing it, say they trip on a cracked paving stone, what you see is that they're clumsy. What they see is a cracked paving stone. So what our technique, just simply asking people to map out the behaviour and the capability, opportunity and motivational factors does is to help to overcome that bias so that you can work out what you need to do to make that behaviour shift. So if you wanted to get to overcome what was some, a pretty bad record that one part of the department had um, as a result of a uh, security sweep, checking how well everybody had been clearing their, their, their documents at the end of the day, and you concluded that the problem was laziness and information, what you'd have missed was that a full third of the breaches in that case were key management problems. And that was a physical design issue. A load of people had put their keys into a single key cabinet. That person, the last person to leave, left that open. Now, if you have a key cabinet, that's a risk you run. So you might want to think about it. Do you ever have a case, though, where it's just impossible to change an individual's behaviour? Well, that's kind of what our whole approach is. Our whole approach says the problem isn't the individual's behaviour. People behave the way they need to behave as a product of the structures, incentives, experiences that they've had. What you can change are the decisions that the organisation makes based on assumptions about behaviour. If those are faulty, if those are decisions made on assumptions that aren't true, you're not going to get the outcomes that you want. And those decisions are well within your control. So trying to force people to go through a performance management system and essentially pitting line managers and individuals against each other was always going to be in tension with them having productive conversations about the individual's development. So you had to have a really radical rethink of what it meant to run an organisation's performance system, get rid of that, focus internal comms on producing support for those conversations to be productive and focused on what that person really needed to thrive. And that's how you get the, the, the global changes in, uh, in, in metrics like employee engagement and feeling valued and a team-based culture. So I think my message is... If a person's behaviour isn't changing, you're probably doing something wrong. That's an important point. So before we uh, finish off, what are the key things uh, that listeners to this podcast should uh, keep in mind for internal comms? Well, it, apart from going to look at our guide, reading that, and which is basically the sum total of our learning on this, I would also step back a moment and think about what values you're bringing to the work 
And if you think about empathy, curiosity, and openness, we found that that's a really simple recipe for really radically looking at your employees and the ways they're behaving in a different way. Ask why they're not behaving the way that you think they, that they ought to. Um, be open to very different ways of running your organisation, if that's what it needs to achieve its goals. And be empathetic when you see people doing things that seem a bit counterproductive. Um, empathy, curiosity and openness is not something we came up with. It was actually um, a former uh, minister for the Cabinet Office who talked about this, but I think it has really enduring impact. And uh, we've used it in a, a blog, which you can look at. If you, if you Google transforming together behavioral science, you'll find something on gov.uk, which is a blog we've done about uh, organizational transformation. Well, Carla, thank you for, uh, for all that information and a couple of places for people to, uh, to go for more information. Um, and good luck with your talk later today. Thank you so much. So next to join us is Max Puller, Employee and Change Communication Director at Sodexo. Uh, Max was sharing the stage with Stuart Williamson of Nationwide Building Society and Adam Clatworthy of SAP, who we um, heard from on our previous episode when they were talking about getting senior leadership buy-in. So Max, welcome to the podcast. Before we talk about uh, the, the case study that you were talking about, do you want to just give us a, a quick overview of Sodexo? Sure. So uh, Sodexo is a global food services and facilities management company with over 400,000 employees around the world, uh, serving 100 million customers uh, each and every day. Within the UK and Ireland, we've got 36,000 employees, so serving around 1 million customers each and every day. And uh, the, the breadth of services that we provide is really quite expansive, from, from fine dining and events at Ascot and scores of sports and leisure venues, managing university student halls and government buildings, to serving up school meals, fueling our forces, and running five UK prisons from governor to groundsman, Sodexo's uh, client roster, and our, uh, our portfolio is yeah, pretty impressive and expansive. That's excellent. So now... In respect to this this conference, obviously you're new to the business. Well, relatively new. You've only been there since March time. Is that correct? Yeah, that's yeah. right. So, how how did you know that a conference, a leadership conference, was was what was required? Well, um, so by the time we started planning the conference, which would have been in May June time, I'd had about two or three months to get my feet under the table, and during that time, I'd um, learnt a bit about the business. So, you know, the fact our financial year runs September to August, a French company listed on the French Stock Exchange, a brand new strategic agenda had been launched the previous year, and facing all sorts of challenges. I'd also noticed that actually from a communications perspective, we were very um, reliant on digital and traditional channels, and there wasn't all that much face-to-face, there wasn't all that much uh, leadership engagement. So... uh, I felt that the time was absolutely right and um, you know, pitched that to the board to get that top 120, our senior leaders in the UK and Ireland region, together for, for, for a leadership conference that would build and nurture that team and deliver on some really crucial objectives at a really, really crucial time. So how exactly did you go about achieving that then? Well, um, like all hopefully good decision-making, it started with an evidence-based proposal Um, to the board and and a pitch and a conversation around it. And I think from that point on, it was a case of working really closely with the board and making sure that I had their buy-in, that they agreed with the principle of the event, that they agreed with the objectives that that I was proposing um, of looking back on the year that had been, looking forward to the year that was to come, and really having clarity and ownership of that strategic agenda for the following financial year 
but also to build and nurture that leadership team. Yes, I wanted decisions. Yes, I wanted approvals from that group. But actually, I didn't go to them every time I needed that. I went to them sometimes just to update them, to build their confidence, to, to, to ensure I had that ongoing buy-in for the project. You've, you've got to work close, closely with the board to, 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 to get this sort of project over the line. We deliberately chose two of our venues, uh, one for the daytime conference, one for the evening um, networking dinner. Um, and that really was a very deliberate choice because I wanted to have the opportunity to almost remind the senior leadership team of, of what they do, why they do it, and actually see our teams in action, serving great food, get, you know, providing great service, the exact same service and food they provide to our clients, we were experiencing, and we could be proud of that and, and really energized, I think, um, after the event. Um, came up with a much more inclusive, collaborative event format, so it wasn't death by PowerPoint, it wasn't keynote after keynote, it was really around empowering those senior leaders to choose what they wanted to attend based on what was A, important and interesting to them, but also what, what they needed to do to, to do their jobs. Um, and that was generally around change programs, around leadership upskilling, softer skills, technology and innovation, um, making sure that we really uh, understand that the, the big trends that are, that are going into the future. And also just making sure that, that those internal networking and social opportunities were, were baked into the event as well. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, no, no mean feat, but uh, really, really pleased with, uh, with how it went in the end. Well, obviously, I'm assuming it was a huge success, otherwise you wouldn't be here <laughs> talking about it. But one, one thing I wanted to ask was how you actually then go about measuring the outcome of it. Well... I think historically measurement has been very tactical. It's been very, um, not just in Sodexo, but, but when it comes to measuring the impact of communications, it's often just about outputs. So bums on seats, number of workshops attended, downloads of you know, resources. Uh, you know, it's, it's just a bit tired and, you know, to, to coin a phrase that the kids say, it's a bit meh. <laughs> um, so actually the real impact would be seeing senior leaders take forward the messaging and actually delivering it to their teams or for instance seeing a particular change in behaviors based on one of the sessions with with, with one of the the groups um, we did do a survey tried to limit the number of questions to actually just assessing our progress and impact against our original objectives you know scores in the high 90s around you know was it effective for reflecting on the performance in the last year did they leave clear or very clear about their role in delivering the, the, the strategy? And did they value the, the team building and, and networking opportunities? So that's, that's encouraging. Um, but I think, I think it's the changes that we see and the, that will truly articulate the impact of the event in the year ahead. Big win for me um, was seeing other senior leaders at other conferences replicating the content, tailoring it for their business areas, and really holding their own teams accountable and empowering them to deliver the strategic agenda in whatever way they needed to. That's great, Max. And, and if I could ask you for one final tip to leave um, our listeners from your session that you gave, what would that be? Well, it's something that I've heard throughout the last two days, and um, it's around knowing your best friends or knowing your allies or invest in your network, I think is how I put it in my session. It's about knowing who you can work with, knowing what makes them tick, 
positioning yourself as a value creator or value adder, um, someone that people trust and, and go to, and also demonstrate that you've invested the time to get to know that person and what makes them tick. Because ultimately it's that which gives you the currency to move forward and influence them. And also it, it gives you an idea of who you might need to work a bit harder with. Tremendous. Uh, Max Poe, thank you for joining the podcast. Thanks very much. You're listening to the C-Suite Podcast. To listen to all previous shows in the series, you can either visit csuitepodcast.com, follow us on SoundCloud, or subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or in any one of your favorite podcast apps. Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do. Welcome back to the C-Suite Podcast with me, Russell Goldsmith, here at PR Week's Strategic Internal Communications Conference. And next to join me is Carrie Rueda. Carrie has held internal communications roles at companies such as Kia, Petrofac and Transport for London. And he's about to start a new role in the oil and gas sector. Now, he has also just finished speaking here at the conference on the topic of catered communications, shaping your communications to your audience. How did the session go, Carrie? Um, yes, no, I think you never know about these things, but I think it went well. To me, one of the one of the barometers is always when you open up for examples or war stories or questions. And we had quite a few. Basically, I've asked people, look, these are just some from my experiences, but we've all worked in internal communications. You have your own war stories, what has worked uh, in terms of you tailoring communications in your areas. We all come from very different sectors, so it's always good to actually share that, share those experiences and lessons learned. Particularly also I asked for some examples where it hasn't worked or we had a campaign that hmm, we bottled up and we decided not to run with it. So those were some of the some of the sharings and uh, the learnings that we uh, exchanged. Well, what I wanted to ask you, I mean, I mentioned some of the companies that you've had roles in just before. So obviously you've worked across construction, transport, automotive sectors. That will mean that, you know, you've got very diverse workforces spread across numerous locations, not everyone in an office, obviously, you know, lots of remote working as well. Where do you start in understanding how your internal audience wants to be communicated to and what tools to use? With that, I've always relied on my marketing and advertising background. So I am primarily a marketing and advertising person. I was a creative director in uh, Young and Ruby Asia Pacific before I moved to the client side, a set of brand and marketing communications at Lotus Cars, and then moved TFL, my first uh, role there was a combination of internal communications and niche marketing. And a year later, I was given the choice, where would I like to go? And I actually really loved internal communications because there was so much opportunity there. It was quite fairly new in a sense that only people were really taking it seriously around 2007. And you get immediate um, feedback, you can change things. Employees will tell you straight away if it's not working or if it's good, and I love that. But also, one thing that really struck me was that I can actually apply the principles of marketing and telecommunications. So it's all about customer segmentation. It's all about robust planning. It's all about looking at your clear objectives and outcomes. Brutal simplicity, if possible. Single-mindedness in your messaging. And sometimes all of these are not quite easy or practical in internal communication. So I try to apply this as much as I can. And of course, creativity and innovation, the principle of cutting through. People are already very busy externally, actually even more so in the workplace, we're just so busy because we have a job to do. So the principle of cutting through an intrusion and disruption is actually quite important. And I've been quite passionate about that in my internal communications role. And I try as much as possible, not always possible, as, as we all know, but I try as much as possible to apply these in, in my work. 
Can you share any examples of the different ways that you've communicated with some of those groups, but also how you measure the effectiveness? Let's start with measuring the effectiveness. It's all about clear objective, isn't it? As I always say, very much like marketing, you start with a very tight brief, very solid, very tight. You know exactly who you're talking to. You know exactly what your objectives are. You know exactly what kind of outcomes. Is it to get volunteers? Is it to increase usage of this? Is it actually to get advocates in a specific campaign? So you actually start with that, and then you can measure that accordingly. But in terms of tailoring communications for different workforces, I think one of the examples um, I can give you is in the oil and gas sector. We're launching a health and safety campaign, and in the Middle East, uh, there were some challenges in terms of how they can actually digest some of the eight golden rules because people were so busy. And most of the workers were from South Asia, so from India, Bangladesh, and uh, Pakistan. So we looked at what their passions are, what can work with these people, what will resonate with them, and then use a bit of gamification in terms of introducing the, the health and safety rules. So our head of health and safety came up with a brilliant idea of doing a computer game for using cricket. Right. So okay. using cricket as a handle, and it resonated with the audience. So I left the company before it, it was completed, but uh, I understand it worked really well. So that's one of the ways of actually making sure that you know what works with your audience yeah. and then use it, maximize it, capitalize it. The other example I can give was when I was at TFL, so we would work with quite a few of the office-based staff, but a big chunk of, of the employees are offline, so they're operatives. So they're dial-a-ride drivers or revenue inspectors or people who are bus drivers. They're, they were not direct employees, but they were part of our workforce. So we would actually go to garages. We would speak to them. We would use, look at what channels, what newspapers do they watch, uh, read, what movies do they watch, and then again, capitalize and use those. When it came to the session today, I talked about the fact that really there's no secret to shaping your communications to your audiences. Again, it's having a tight brief. But also, apart from that, which should be a given, and we all know that in our day-to-day -day world, whether it's you who will be delivering it, or it's an agency, or it's a team, always write a brief and always be tight. As the famous saying goes, garbage in garbage out <laughs> if your brief isn't great then the product or the campaign won't won't work so you have to start with that and you have to win your stakeholders and your internal clients this is the brief this is what we're achieving it sounds really basic but actually it's something that we need to really discipline and encourage our internal clients because sometimes goalposts change as you know and once you've got a tight brief then you can do that so the three i came up with three don'ts these are just from my experience the three don'ts in terms of how you can shape or tailor your communications. Already given you have a tight brief, yeah, that's a given. The first one is don't overlook what your employees are passionate about outside work. It's good that you, you, you know that they like email or they like teams or they're like, but what are they interested in outside work? What kind of sport that they're into? What films? What books do they read? What kind of newspapers do they read? Because then you can use that and capitalize that. The second one is a very clear marketing principle that don't blend in. It's the cut-through. It's the intrusion. It's quite important. Um, I think people in the workplace are much busier, in fact, than people outside. 
we're so bombarded with so there's so much clutter internally as well so if you have a very important message you need to have that intrusion the element of intrusion and the third one is don't be afraid of emotion make that emotional con- connection make try to make people smile or make make them laugh or make them even think and ponder and uh, be a bit more provocative again of course in the appropriate way and also depends on where your campaign is because if you actually adopt those three then you will come up with something that's human my favorite mantra in internal comms is don't talk to your employees as employees talk to them as people uh, then you can avoid the dry corporate stuff that the image of internal communication sometimes suffers unfairly so because there have been some really great internal comms and employee engagement campaigns so I always try to keep those three rules into my mind whenever I come up with a campaign or a piece of internal communications. As I said, it doesn't always happen. Internal communications, we have our own challenges. We have very small budgets, usually very small teams, usually very little time. But as much as possible, try to pick your battles and have a few campaigns that can make you adopt these principles because it will pay off. That's a nice way to leave it. Good message, Carrie Rueda. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and uh, good luck with your next role that you're Thanks starting. So much. Cheers. Right. So next to join me is Zoe Bavadari, Director of Internal Communications and Engagement at Talk Talk. Uh, Zoe has just finished her session um, this morning on innovating employee engagement on any budget. Uh, what was the main message that you were sharing in that? Hi, yeah, I, th- I suppose really the main message was that we've been able to have an impact on colleague engagement in the right direction and that's really because we've agreed a really clear framework for what we want to stand for as an employer our employer brand if you will uh, with four key pillars and once we'd agreed that then we were able to sort of go for it quite creatively in terms of uh, making sure that colleagues understood what they are so um, number one is we're for everyone we're a highly inclusive employer number two is that we're fast and focused and that's really in terms of our ways of working and we can fail fast and learn quickly uh, number three is about we create opportunities and that's making sure colleagues really grab hold of some of the offerings that we've got and that they uh, that, 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 that if they're ambitious that they build a network and go out and, and, and get those changes And then um, the the fourth one is we stand for something, and that's about being proud to be a value brand and the difference that it makes for our customers. So once we had those four agreed, then all engagement initiatives sort of uh, were were able to be uh, agreed off off the back of them, and we were able to uh, design a campaign that, that, that sat behind those four. That's great. So can you share some examples of how you've engaged with your colleagues across those four pillars that you just listed? Yeah. So against the We're For Everyone pillar, our inclusion pillar, um, that's uh, the, the first campaign that we brought, really, um, first week of activity that we did. And we invited in some guest speakers and we ran a lot of online competitions and events. So um, we invited Colin Jackson to come in um, to talk about uh, resilience. And a lot. he shared a lot of personal stories. Um, we probably had about Four, three or four hundred colleagues came to listen to him talk just an hour out of the day and uh, I think that was just really exciting for them to see an Olympian you know come into our offices um, and, and talk about some things that were quite personal to him uh, we also invited Fern Cotton to come in she talked about well-being and again 
great for colleagues to see somebody that you know they know from the telly, but um, talk about a very sort of candid personal topic, um, and great for us to sort of I guess give permission for that that conversation to happen internally. But we also did some more strategic things. We brought in some of the third parties that we work with really closely, um, so that all colleagues, new and old, um, realised what was on offer for them. So. We have affiliations with the British Disability Forum, with working families, who we, who we already work with and pay um, to, you know, for, for that affiliation. But we actually said, no, come in and let's do a roadshow and, and tell our colleagues what, what, what services are available to them and if they want to talk to you um, in more deeply, how, how they can do that. We also invited our, um, our internal networks. So we've got uh, colleague networks. We have a wellbeing community, a women in technology community, um, and a very new neurodiversity community. And um, we invited them to come to a roadshow as well. So it was a bit like a Freshers' Fair style. We had, everyone had a stand, um, but all colleagues could come and just find out, okay, who are our partners? And, and we sort of kicked things off really with, with that roadshow. But we also had a lot of personal stories that people were sharing on, on our intranet, on the wire. There was a great story. Um, our chief people officer shared a great story. He's now gone on adoption leave. He and his husband have adopted a lovely little boy. Um, and he was able to talk very openly about the experience of getting married, going through the adoption process um, with his husband, and, and what that means now on his extended uh, adoption leave. And I think for colleagues to understand that actually our senior team are going through all these sort of personal life changes and choices is just brilliant to sort of open up that conversation internally so he's been a great role model what format are you using for that then is that t text or video uh, our intranet is um at the moment it's a sharepoint tool um yeah. so a lot of it has been written written text yeah, yeah. um we do use some video but i'd love to use more it's just, it, we've got our site set on a on a, on a newer platform that'll be a bit more uh, video uh, video friendly or podcast or podcast friendly <laughs> indeed yeah thought i'd throw that one in thank there. you um <laughs> How are you measuring the success of those? Well, of, of all those different aspects that you're talking about. I suppose the, the two things, really. We are doing, um, at the moment, we're doing monthly engagement surveys, and we're tracking that, which has been the biggest sort of barometer of success, but also lots of conversations with colleagues. And then sort of some of the softer measures, really. We're looking at channels where colleagues are starting to, to talk about what, the fact that they work for TalkTalk and they're proud of it. There's an increasing number of comments that they're putting on LinkedIn. Our Glassdoor rating's gone up. So um, looking at those kind of channels, those external channels, as much as what we're hearing internally. And, you know, we also measure colleague attrition. And, you know, great to see that uh, we're increasingly keeping the good talent that we've recruited um, as well. And we're using that as a sort of a, a barometer for success as well. Excellent. Uh, one of the things that I know was mentioned in your session was um, your move to Salford. How did that impact on teams? Because you've come from London to Salford, so I'm assuming there's a lot of people impacted on that. Yeah. Um, we announced the move uh, last November, and we gave colleagues about 11 months' notice that we were planning this transition. And we gave them a huge amount of information um, and support so that they could make a decision about whether they wanted to move to Salford and, uh, with TalkTalk Talk, or whether they wanted to take an enhanced redundancy package and that they had a long time to be able to make that decision. And um, I guess for those who wanted to make, make an educated decision, we had tours up in Salford. We talked about great communities where you can live. We did talk, had local schools to come and talk to us and also, you know, showcase the offices themselves. And then we also made sure that there were a lot of external support available as well. So 
we worked with a company called LHH Penner, who gave a lot of support from an offboarding point of view for colleagues to really understand, actually, if I think I am going to be leaving, what, do, what are the implications for that? LinkedIn came in to talk to colleagues who might be looking for a new role and how can we help them boost their profile if they've decided not to move north with us. So I think we tried to make sure we just looked after people, whether they were going to stay with us and move to the north or whether they were actually going to look for another role within, within London um, and, and just try and make sure that that was as sensitively handled as possible. Um, and, and I'm really pleased that it looked like that's what did happen because our monthly engagement scores went up even with our London leavers um, you know, giving us that feedback. So, yeah, we're kind of proud of how sensitively we handled it, but also how professional our colleagues were as they were making their decisions. Have you noticed any change in culture at all? I think we're really starting to see the benefits now of being in one main campus. You know, the prime reason for the move, I guess there were two, collaboration in one space has become a lot easier and really getting work done quickly. And obviously there's been some cost savings of leading London as well. But there's also really what we've been able to do in the local community started to really um, make a difference. Um, we sponsor Salford Football Club, who are, are not a premiership team yet, but hopefully will be one day soon. But they do have some fairly high profile um, owners. Um, but we also sponsored Salford Pride this summer. Um, and we were working increasingly with some of the schools in the area as well in terms of work placements. So there's quite a lot of activity that we're trying to do to, I guess, really establish ourselves as a Northwest based employer. Yeah. Excellent. Um, the uh, title of your talk was Innovating Employee Engagement on Any Budget. Um, that sounds like a lot has been spent. <laughs> well, I suppose in terms of where we've tried to be creative, you know, the big, this time last year we talked about about booking a big space and having a great a sort of um, all-hands moment up in the northwest when we'd arrived. And then we looked at the budgets for that and thought, no, we're, we're not going to be able to afford that. And I think what we've done actually is a, a lot... lot more of a creative way of solving the problem of, of trying to make sure that colleagues feel committed and engaged. We've, we've spaced out activity over a number of weeks and we have invited in those guest speakers and some of them we've had to pay for but we've done that on our own site so we have not had to pay for venues and um, things like that. We've, um, our, our compares have been our great leadership team who've really got involved so our CEOs interviewed our guests, our, our MD of consumer, our chief operating officer for Talk Talk Business they've all, they've all had a sort of role to play which has been brilliant and I I suppose we've tried to make sure that colleagues can get involved in this without it being highly disruptive to their work. So our guest speakers were an hour a day. You can walk up a flight of stairs, eat your packed lunch, come and listen to Fern Cotton, go back and carry on with your day. So really the cost has been in some of those guest speakers, but we've not had to pay for all of them. Um, and I think that's critical is we've worked with our marketing teams and some of the relationships we've got through our brand um, to be able to get some of those um, guest speakers in at, at no cost or reduced cost. Um, we had a great event with Heart Radio um, and we sponsor uh, the Heart Radio and Heart Breakfast and they came in and ran a big quiz for all of our colleagues which was loads of fun and, and part of our sponsorship contract. So actually it didn't cost the internal comms team any, any budget. Fantastic. So if you had one uh, last message for our listeners on this topic, what would that be? I, I suppose it's that everything gets a bit easier when you've agreed a framework up, up front. Having those four pillars just made it so much clearer for us to be able to decide which guests we wanted to book and what competitions and what activities we wanted to do. And it's really helped our narrative keep it really tight. Um, and also having a team who are really up for it and, and up for the challenge. Um, you know, we, we love a list. We love to keep busy. And blimey, we have been delivering all that work. <laughs> Tremendous. Uh, Zoe, thank you so much for uh, joining the show. Pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.
Well, that, in fact, wraps up these two episodes that we've recorded at PR Week's uh, Strategic Internal Communications Conference. So thanks to all my guests who took the time to chat to us over the course of the conference and, of course, to the organising team at PR Week for making it happen. We hope you've got a lot out of both of our Strategic Internal Comms episodes and we'd love to hear any comments you may have on this topic. So if you'd like to contribute to the discussion, you can do that on our Facebook page, Twitter feed or LinkedIn and Instagram pages. And they are all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com where you'll also find find all our previous shows and supporting show notes plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads for each episode via your favorite podcast app and if you've enjoyed the show please do give us a positive rating and review uh, finally if you'd like to get in touch with us you can do that via the contact form on the website or you can reach me via twitter using at russ goldsmith but for now thanks for listening and goodbye